Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks, a special episode of our podcast. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. We are joined by a very special returning guest for this very special episode, co-creator of such shows as The Leftovers and Lost, Damon Lindelof. Thank you so much for returning to a Twin Peaks podcast. I couldn't be more proud to have been invited back. This is, uh, I don't know what the equivalent on the uh, Twin Peaks podcast is for the SNL Five Timers Club, but I'm going for the jacket, and time is, time is ticking down. <laughs> well, glad we could make that happen. What I really love about your appearance today is I really appreciate you getting in the spirit of this episode by actually uh, materializing through our phones and appearing at a payphone booth. So I, I, I really appreciate that, Damon. For those of us who have told our young children not to stick forks and knives into electrical appliances, I stand corrected. (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) Who knew? I don't know what happened. Do you guys know what happened? we'll, We'll find out next week. Right, right. We, we definitely have some theories. Uh, Darren and I have uh, chatted about them. We tend to think that when we return to Dougie's house next week or whenever, Dougie won't be there. And he is most likely en route to Twin Peaks, perhaps by way of some like Black Lodge power station or White Lodge room with the firemen. Uh, do, do you have any thoughts on that? I hope that's not the case because it feels like, you know, Gordon and Albert and Diane and Tammy are now descending on Las Vegas. Also, uh, Agent Stan from Mad Men. I don't, uh, I don't, I don't know the, the character's name, but, you know, he yells a lot and is awesome. And I feel like it would be very disappointing for them to show up at Cheney E's house with Dougie having flown the coop, uh, as it were. So I, I hope that he is just unconscious lying there on the ground, uh, uh, perhaps with a bit more of Cooper uh, downloaded. You know, and, uh, uh, He seems to be getting these kind of operating system updates on occasion, but I hope that physically he is still in Las Vegas. That is, that, that is my hope. I, I'm eager for him to get to Twin Peaks, but at the same time, I want to see that road trip. They'll have a lot of distance to travel then in those final three hours with, with only three hours left. I mean, they, they have to cram a lot of things in there. We want to talk with you more. They've got a jet. They got a ju- <laughs> They've got a jet. That's though. true. Good point. <laughs> Gordon Cole has a jet. Are you guys watching Game of Thrones? Appar- uh, traveling great distances is not really an issue in, tele- <laughs> in, in prestige television anymore. So we'll cross over there, but that, I, I'm not concerned. <laughs> It does feel as if the days of kind of having episodes of people slowly going places, that is very much kind of fallen by the wayside. But I think that's one reason why this season's been interesting. And, you know, you were kind of mentioning this, Damon. Um, I've been trying to pinpoint when exactly I fully fell in love with Dougie being in Las Vegas. And I think one of the difficulties about looking back over the season is almost every step of the way, I always kind of thought that plot line was going to end soon. I mean, I I can recall when we last had you on, I kind of had in my head, okay, Agent Cooper goes to Las Vegas, loses his memory. This is an interesting sort of first act of what I assume will be his return 
return to Twin Peaks. And it's been interesting seeing how, you know, quite the opposite. That's become one of the defining through lines of this show, which I think fair to say would have surprised anyone who came into this show expecting it to be about someone named Special Agent Dale Cooper hanging out in a town called Twin Peaks. What's your kind of journey been like with that story? Like, you know, was, was there a moment where you were kind of all the way in where you felt like, OK, no, like I want to stay here in Las Vegas, this totally different setting from what the original show was uh, located in? That's a great question, and, and, I, and I think it's probably the fundamental question in terms of the, the emotional experience that many of us have, have gone along over the course of these episodes. And I think that this idea of what, what do I want became supplanted by sort of giving myself over to the show and whatever it was putting down. That whole sort of journey is really embodied in the Dougie Jones story. And I think that it became pretty clear by maybe the fifth or sixth hour somewhere in that space, you know, this is going to park here for a while. He's not going anywhere. Um, I think both David Lynch's and, and perhaps Mark Frost, but certainly Kyle McLaughlin's, you know, performance started to kind of openly declare that this is going to be a season-long arc as opposed to something that's going to re- get resolved over the course of just a couple episodes. But more importantly... You know, the more that I saw Mr. C or, or Dirty Cooper or whatever, the, whatever it is we're calling him, the, the more that it became apparent that we were dealing with kind of a, a horcrux uh, situation, to borrow from the, the Harry Potter vernacular, which is I think that we had it stuck in our head that, that the Dale Cooper that we know and love, his being, his self, his consciousness, his soul – was basically hanging out in the Black Lodge or the White Lodge or whatever, the Red Room, I think we can all agree. And, that when, and when he left that room, even though he was not behaving like the Dale Cooper that we know and love, in fact, you know, he seemed mystified and he was a man of few words, et cetera, et cetera, that when he left that space, uh, in that in- incredible uh, episode two, and then uh, uh, downloaded his consciousness into the tulpa of, of Dougie Jones, who was uh, having sex with a prostitute at the time, that it was just a matter of time before he be- be, you know, his consciousness was returned. But if you look at Mr. C, at, at Dirty Cooper, it, that's Dale Cooper's physical body. And so the idea that he cannot really be complete, he cannot be the Dale Cooper that we know and love and, and remember until those two beings are somehow merged together, uh, which we kind of got a taste of uh, uh, in last week's episode when Andy ventures into uh, the Red Room or the Black Lodge or the White Lodge, whatever it is, and the fireman gives him that download. We saw that sort of superimposed image of the two of them coming together. It's now become clear that we're not going to get, you know, coffee-loving, cherry-pie-eating, you know, Dale Cooper, you know, conscious and able to form complete sentences until those two characters uh, come together because different aspects of the Dale Cooper that we know and love are residing in each of those forms. Yeah, um, I feel like I've, I've taken some of the journey that you've alluded to. Like, I, I feel like I engaged a lot of the early episodes with two different tracks. One was appreciating like this whole concept of Cooper as Dougie, 
but also still feeling very much my want to see original recipe Dale Cooper and kind of like that expectation that Twin Peaks is not going to be what I thought it was going to be. That expectation had to slowly die over a period of time and and allow the other thing, which is just appreciating the journey of this whole thing to just to buy in and invest in that. And I think for me, the episode that just changed everything for me across the board was actually an episode that didn't involve Dougie at all, but that amazing episode part eight in which we went back in time and witnessed the detonation of the atomic bomb. And it just, that episode just seemed to announce that this this, this season is, is, is blowing up all your expectations. It's going to take us anywhere and everywhere and be about anything. Like, what did you think about that episode in particular, part eight, and as, as a piece of television, as a piece of art? Like, like what, what's your regard for that? I think that I'm in the, you know, overwhelming majority that I was completely and totally blown away by that episode. I think it's one of the most compelling episodes of television I've ever seen. Uh, let alone uh, one of the one of the best of the year, because you know it defies explanation, and it's sort of one of the ways that it, that I think about that episode is is when you're kind of wandering around in the museum, and we might have spoken about this before, but if you go to like a modern art museum in in you know Los Angeles or New York or or anywhere else around the world, and there's always that room where they're just like projecting this weird kind of like art film. You know, like, you know, Unshen Andalou or something like that. And you just go in and you sit there for five minutes and you watch it and it just plays on a loop. And then you kind of walk out. But every once in a while, one of them is like so compelling that you end up watching it, you know, the, the entire loop. And I feel that way about episode eight. I mean, I've probably seen it in its entirety. You know, it's the only episode this season, in fact, that I've rewatched uh, a couple of times. And it defies. Uh, the traditional ways that we talk about episodes of television or even television in general. Um, I think it's kind of the purest expression of, of David Lynch and what he's trying to say about uh, this, this world and the story that he's telling. It's also really beautiful, um, just in, 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 in striking in terms of its, its imagery and oddly and, and unconventionally emotional. And yes, are there fascinating conversations to be have about potentially the idea of that young teenage girl at the end that the bug crawls in the mouth of, is that Sarah Palmer, et cetera. But, you know, all of the interpretive links back to the story that we, that we know and love, I just think that it kind of stands alone as this incredible uh, journey into an artist's mind. And, and, and the fact that it just, <laughs> that, it, that Showtime put that thing on is in and of itself like a celebration of of Lynch and Prestige TV and and all these other things. I mean, I just I I think that I I, I couldn't love it more. It was it was pretty phenomenal. One of the things that I love about uh, what you just said, Damon, is something that Jeff and I have talked about a lot. That as much fun as elements of this season have been to sort of really go down a rabbit hole and, you know, whether it's following coordinates, following some particular visual cues, picking up on the incredible wealth of references to Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, there is 
this other side of a lot of parts of this season that are just sort of, it's almost beyond words and beyond description and kind of beyond analysis. I'd love to know outside of part eight, are there other moments or characters or sequences that stand out to you kind of in that regard as just being really unique, uh, you know, the ability to see David Lynch be David Lynch, to see something really unique and unusual that kind of, you know, creates a, a sort of effect that, you know, maybe kind of goes beyond or sidesteps the sort of yearning to analyze and the yearning to sort of deconstruct the the mystery? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that I'm obviously very taken by, you know, anything that happens in that Red Room, Black Lodge, White Lodge space. Um, whenever we tap into, I, I've yet to see any of this season where we're in that space where I'm not leaning forwards and completely and totally fascinated by it. And that isn't to say that I'm not intrigued and engaged by um, other sequences in the show that are, you know, more direct or less mythological, but in some somehow they they connect to that space, like the moment, you know, when Gordon, Albert, and and Tammy, and uh, uh, you know, descend on this place where Major Briggs died or was decapitated or who knows what the hell happened there, and the vortex <laughs> basically opens in the sky. You know, those mythological constructs, as Jeff knows, because I've been talking about it incessantly, I am absolutely and totally obsessed with Freddie, who was just introduced last week, who, you know, is sort of, you know, uh, like carrying out this sort of traditional, you know, kind of superhero myth, you know, I mean, he tells his like, his superhero origin story, almost as if like the Green Lantern was like, oh, I don't have a ring, I just have a glove, and all it can do is crush walnuts and punch people really hard. But but even even Freddy, my obsession with Freddy is not just based on sort of the light touch, right? I mean, I think he's clearly designed to be kind of a comedic character in many ways, but even it turns out that Freddy is only fascinating to me because he he was also activated by the fireman who is now quickly you know sort of the the Nick Fury of the of the peaks verse you know putting together this very bizarre consortium of of avengers you know including Andy and Freddie and and god knows who else has been dispatched to twin peaks for for this epic sort of battle of good and evil i mean freddie of course is 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 unsure of what his role in the in the end game is in the meantime he's just going to make sure that uh James gets the girl that he likes by uh completely and totally giving her current husband brain damage but just the noise that that green glove makes when it when it punches people i don't know i all joking aside i did come into this episode uh this week saying i really don't care what happens as long as i see the glove in action and that is, and I was not disappointed. <laughs> I, I like to think that the that the glove moment that we got from Freddie in his in terms of his superhero origin story is the the lesson of with great power comes great responsibility. Because I I got the sense that maybe that wasn't the the, the best application of 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 the glove or, or or why it was given to him. And now he's in jail. Yeah. And I, and I also love that however that story resolved last week, obviously James kind of wanders down into the, into the basement there of the Great Northern and there's something behind a door. Whatever, whatever happened there is not consequential. I imagine that James kind of came back to Freddie and said, look, you know, there's this girl that I have a crush on, but she's married. And so if you wouldn't mind coming with me to the roadhouse, I'm going to make sort of a, a, a non-aggressive remark 
of compliment to this woman that will, will most certainly antagonize her husband. And then what I need you to do is give him brain damage <laughs> and, and, any el- and anybody else who's willing to, to fight on his behalf. I just hope that that happened because, because that scene would sort of explain everything that happened. James just sort of like, what, one rule... You know, do not wander up to a married woman while she is sitting with her burly husband and compliment her unless you've got a guy with, like, a devastating power glove as your wingman. That's just a – those – I've always – I've always said this. People looked at me quizzically before last night's episode. Now I think they finally understand what I've been blathering on about. That makes perfect sense now. Um, Let's actually just dive into last night's episode and maybe kind of use it to talk about um, some things in general for, for the season. But let's just begin with that great, like romantic, that the whole sequence with like um, Ed and Nadine and, and and Norma, um, I found it to be one of the most sweetest, most unabashedly like romantic uh, things that Lynch has ever put on screen. I was a little bothered by how much Nadine was taking ownership of of the relationship and kind of like saying that the reason why their marriage was awful was all on her. I, I felt bad for her for, for over owning that, you know, she, she has had some like mental illness after all, explaining some of her uh, interesting behavior, but you know, the payoff with Ed proposing to Norma, I mean, it was just so beautiful and the use of the Otis Redding song. Like what did, what, what did you think of that scene? Were, were you moved by it? Like, like we were, well, you know, I'm a sucker for Otis Redding. Um, we, we've used him multiple times over the course of the three seasons of The Leftovers and, and very prominently in, in the finale. I think that there's, there's something about uh, Otis Redding that is both, you know, romantic and tragic and beautiful and hopeful. And, and I think that the, you know, the use of the live recording and the, and the way that it came in and out and the, and the, and the feel of the audience, because it was a live performance, you know, really brought a tremendous amount of power and just that moment where, you know, Nadine's hand kind of creeps into the frame on, on Big Ed's shoulder after he's ordered the, uh, the cyanide pill, which by the way, um, is just, is not, you know, ha- hasn't been a big seller on the menu, gets ordered with, with not a lot of frequency. You know, it's part of like the two, two and two. You can get the, you know, the flapjacks and the bacon and the eggs and also the, the cyanide pill, but I'm glad that uh, that she got in there before it came. I'm with you a little bit, not to not to be all woke about it, but I did I did agree with you uh, about Nadine sort of saying, "Hey, look, you've been in love with this woman the entire time that we've been married, and you're a saint, and that's all on me, and now I'm freeing you." Part of me like hopes that you know, as she walked away in her sensible shoes and shovel that she's headed for Mike at uh, his used car dealership <laughs> and is going to declare her love for him, you know, back, back, echoing back to her own sort of like Dougie Jones journey in season two of Peaks when, you know, when she believed herself to be back in, uh, in high school because Nadine deserves love. And it's great that she's, she's cutting through the bullshit. But if this is the last that we've seen of Big Ed and, uh, and, uh, and considering the first that we'd really seen of him was just a week or two ago, I'm feeling a, an immense level of satisfaction that not only has he found, you know, uh, true love, 
um, but also that the, the double R is not going to be, uh, you know, franchised and corrupted by selling their cheap-ass pies. There's a, there's a high moral threshold for quality pies, and, uh, and Norma, you know, drew a line in the, in the, in the crust and uh, it's good to know that uh, that that she uh, has values and they will not be corrupted. <laughs> yeah, one of the things that I've found interesting about you know the Norma aspect of this season, first of all, that I was just always so intrigued by all the sequences where she seemed to just be sort of sitting at that table watching things like you know Marvel's Watcher character and not really commenting on them, but her sort of sudden storyline and this idea of franchising, which feels rather endearingly meta to me, it kind of brings up something about this season that I don't think about a lot until it happens, that this is a sequel slash reboot of something that was a huge part of popular culture so many years ago. Um, You know, it feels to me as if the notion of fan service has become sort of a dirty word lately, and it, it strikes me that this season somehow, you could argue it is sort of a testament to doing the exact opposite of what everyone expects. We talked a lot about, you know, Dougie in Las Vegas and just, you know, the kind of denial of that pleasure mixed with scenes like, you know, we were just talking about. I mean, if you could have imagined something that would happen in this season, the idea of Big Ed and Norma having a sort of declaration of love, that would have been, I think, at the top of of everyone's list. I'd love to know, I mean, as someone who is a fan of the original show, how has the kind of treatment of the original characters in this season felt to you? Are, are there are there aspects that have surprised you? Uh, are there characters who, upon seeing them again, you've been either especially moved or especially frustrated with sort of their role in in this new season? Ah, uh, well, you know, this is. Uh, you, am, am I the one who now has to bring up Audrey Horn, or, or you know, because uh, way to lure him into that one, well, Darren? I, I, I guess we'll yeah. We'll get we'll get to that shortly. Let's just say, like, I went from feeling like utter contempt for Richard Horn as a guy who is an abuser of women. He's completely and totally detestable. He's violent. He's sociopathic. He runs over children in the street without an ounce of remorse. But now that I have seen what his home life might have been like, if he was raised in that home and had to experience the arguments that Audrey and I don't even know the name of her husband who is threatening to take his coat off uh, <laughs> is. But if, if he was subjected to what we have been subjected to throughout his entire childhood, it is not an excuse for his behavior, but it is certainly an explanation for it. Um, and, uh, and he has my sympathies, I suppose. But putting all that aside... Yeah, I mean, you know, is it nice? It's great. Anytime we see the classic characters, it's just a touchstone back to the original series. And in many ways, I think that, uh, you know, Lynch and Frost have sort of carte blanche to use them however they want. And and I think that particularly anytime that I'm in the Twin Peaks Sheriff's Office and we're dealing with Andy and Lucy and, and Hawk, um, certainly the emotional um, whammy of uh, Logs Lady's passing uh, this week uh, w- w- resonated as it did when we saw her in the very first episode calling. And, and so, you know, I think that any time that a, a character that we know and love dies, uh, we're supposed to feel something. You know, the, there are 
you know, sort of glaring omissions. Uh, you know, it is, it's a little bit uh, strange to see Donna Hayward's younger sister, you know, uh, <laughs> featured so prominently and no mention of Donna or what has become of her, considering how prominent she was in the original series. And I understand that perhaps Lara Flynn Boyle didn't want to appear, but, you know, I'm sure there's a, there's a tea kettle out there that was willing to read for her part, too. Um, so, you know, like, there, where, where, there, where there's a will, there's a way. So, it's, it, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a little odd to, uh, um, to deny us the, the people who were super prominent, but it's, it's, it's been nice in these last few episodes to c- kind of refocus on you know some of the the classic uh, as you as you talk about um Dougie Jones being new coke you know this 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 coke product that is it comes in a red and white can but it's not it doesn't taste like old coke classic and and we want coke classic it is always great to see the classic characters in sort of any context i'm i, I don't feel like that I, I, watching the sort of more soap opera elements of the show kind of play out the romances. I feel like what we got with Big Ed and, and Norma is about as close to a, you know, a traditional resolution as, as, as Lynch and Frost are willing to give us. And so I accept it uh, and, and embrace it with open arms. Lord knows what's going to happen to everyone else in the, uh, in the coming weeks. Yeah, yeah. Your take on Richard Horn as it relates to Audrey and Charlie and uh, that house, uh, Charlie. Charlie. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Um, what was really interesting because to be honest, it's pretty smart and it actually speaks to a possibility that I must be, uh, frankly say that I've never really considered because I've been so caught up in the oddness of these scenes and the possibility and maybe even desire for these scenes to not be quote unquote real. And you and I, when we've talked about this over the past several weeks have had, you know, interesting conversations about what is real on this show, but with the Audrey stuff, I've been so caught up in wondering, is this all happening in her head? Is she the, is she dreaming this? Is she in a coma and still in a coma? Um, Is she someone else's? dream and all that kind of stuff that I never kind of really considered the possibility of what would happen if no, no, this is real. And this has been her reality, quote unquote, for years. And Richard was actually brought up in this home. I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on what your, what your take is on this current debate over Audrey and Charlie. Um, Do you suspect that there is more to this quote-unquote reality than meets the eye? Or are you kind of leaning more into, no, this is all legit, and this is who Audrey's been for a while, who knows how long, um, but but, but this has been... You know, this has been her real waking, living, breathing life in the town of Twin Peaks. I mean, I I offer the caveat that I always do when we get into these conversations, which is, you know, to to discuss like things that make sense or... Um, or adhere to the to the rules of sort of cause and effect or normalcy is always a treacherous path when it comes to Twin Peaks and one you know best not traversed in general. But since we are on a podcast about it and people are are taking their precious time to listen to to us um, uh, theorize, uh, I, I I I accept the green gloved gauntlet that you've thrown on the ground, um, and and I will say that. I I I think that 
you know, what, what, we, what you see is what you get, that I think that this is happening in the real world. Um, I think that the basis for that is that these characters, Billy, Billy and uh, is Tina the other character that they're kind of like throwing around? Or There's Tina, who was one of the last people to see Billy, and they're, they're thinking that Chuck might have had something yeah. to do with Billy's disappearance, but Tina's mom was also there too. So a whole lot of names to keep track. <laughs> and there, gotcha. there's an uncle that may or may right. not have been okay. there as well. But, let, you know, at the bar... A couple other characters whose names I don't know. They were they were they were mentioning the same mysterious Billy and Tina uh, characters, which seems to suggest that the subjective reality in which Audrey and Charlie are talking about them, the subjective reality that they're all sharing together. So I think that the idea that Audrey Horn is in a coma somewhere, and this is you know this is uh, some kind of hellscape that you know she's having some kind of inception like you know, disconnect is not happening. I think that, you know, she was in a coma for a brief period of time following the uh, the bank explosion and she woke up and, you know, the she she married this this guy Charlie and uh and 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 life went on. I think that what's most probably distressing and again I don't like saying I like this, I don't like this I'm trying not to experience Twin Peaks in the conventional sense of I'm going to nitpick at plot or characters or writing or storytelling because it's it's such a a grand, you know, artistic vision. You're you know we're we're meant to basically kind of look up at the roof of the Sistine Chapel and not uh, fixate on on any one part of the mural. But I will say that many of the characters, probably all of the characters that we've been reintroduced to, the classic characters, whether it's Ben Horn or Shelley or Norman Big Ed or Nadine or Doc Jacoby or Doc Hayward, they're all kind of the way that we remember them. You know, obviously 25 years has passed, but they still embody the things that, you know, the adjectives that we use to describe those characters. Audrey is not behaving the way that the Audrey Horn that we know and love behaved. And, uh, and so we're having dissonance. And, and instead of saying, because we're unable to, to criticize the show and say, we don't like this, we are coming up with far-fetched you know, theories like, that's not the real Audrey, in order to kind of justify the dissonance that we are experiencing. All that said, I think that's the real Audrey. And my hope is that uh, she's going to get out of that house after she strangles Charlie <laughs> and lighten up a bit. <laughs> um, you reminded me of uh, uh, something that has stuck with me back from our lost days and our lost con- our conversations about lost. That whole theory about how sometimes we theorize when we're confronted with something that we actually don't like or don't understand. And uh, it's it's maybe a little less uh, capturing the imagination and more trying to solve a logic bust or a, or a taste bust that is, that is happening in our head when our, when our shows sort of defy our expectation or don't do what we want them to do. Uh, so I look forward to seeing where, where, where the show is going to end on Audrey. I want to ask you about a, another subject because I, I, I'm afraid that, well, we need to talk about it um, in the time that we have remaining. Uh, and, and because it's such a huge topic, um, I'm afraid we won't have enough time for it. And that's 
the whole business of Mr. C going to uh, the convenience store and then going to the place that we now know, or we are assuming to be this unreal space called uh, the the Dutchman's. And wow, like uh, Darren and I talked about this scene this morning, and we probably spent an hour and 20 minutes alone trying to just talk our way through it and make sense of it. And then you realized you had missed the eclipse. <laughs> you realized you missed the eclipse because you were talking. You were talking about that. Scene. Oh well, it'll you, it'll happen again in like a century. <laughs> Dang, I'm missing so much from the real world with my with my TV obsessions. When you watch that scene, how do you watch that scene when you know that you're in the midst of just for lack of a better word, Lynchian weirdness, do you just go with the flow and let it flow? Or do you actively try to figure out what's going on every step of the way? How did you experience that uh, that whole sequence? Well, I'll start by saying I loved it. Just again, like I thought it was bravura filmmaking, incredibly engaging. I can't say enough things about Kyle McLaughlin's performance as Mr. C. Like I, I'm, I'm just totally dialed in in every way, shape, and form. And just the the, the sound design, especially to kind of pivot off of the the Otis Redding uh, music and the and the sweetness of of Norma and Big Ed's you know, emotional consummation to just pivot right into that um, is kind of, you know, both jarring and kind of amazing. And so, you know, just to start with the, you know, not to bury the lead is I, I liked it a lot. Watching it, though, I will say that I, I've had the, I had the experience that I've had many times over the course of this season, which is I'm in fire walk with me territory and I need to kind of refresh myself on fire walk with me in order to fully grasp what's happening here. And I know that there is a bit of hand-holding going on. I know that the convenience store is a space that was discussed in fire walk with me. Um, and certainly Jeffrey's uh, uh, featured very prominently in, in fire walk with me. When I listened to you guys talk about last week's episode, you sort of mentioned, oh, they're not going to do any Judy talk. <laughs> Um, uh, because they, they, they carefully sort of like edited around when, when Cole reminisces about that interaction with Jeffries in the movie Firewalk with me, there was a lot of Judy talk, but they, they cut that out. So we don't have to worry about Judy. And what we are now treated to is a three minute long scene in which Mr. C, who is the pivotal big bad of, of this season of Twin Peaks over and over again says, who is Judy? What is the big deal with Judy? What do I need to know about Judy? And Jeffries slash teapot, uh, you know, responds, you've already met her. So this idea of like, oh, now, like, you know, with with three hours to go, the question on the top of of everyone's list is, but who is Judy? <laughs> um, you know, I I I find that absolutely delightful. And if it is not intentional trolling, on behalf of of Lynch and or Frost, like it's equally delightful. But I'm absolutely and totally convinced that it is it is trolling of the highest magnitude. A and B. We will never, ever find out who Judy is, um, ever. 
we will be we will be arguing about who Judy is. <laughs> was Judy Josie Packard's you know twin sister? In which case she could be any handle or doorknob that has that, that has that has appeared <laughs> in Twin Peaks: The Return. It's, it's you know it's Judy is it's it, it's like it's not just a person. She could she could be any appliance that we've dealt with. Uh, you know, let's put together our Judy list because that's the big takeaway from that entire journey. Um, Cooper finally is confronting Jeffries, the the man with the plan, the guy at the center of all of this intrigue, and and what we get in re- response is some version of. I told you back in Fire Walk with me, it's all about Judy, asshole. Um, and so, yeah, I, what, what is one to make of that other than to smile ear to ear and shake their head in sort of quiet resignation at the, at the incredible brilliance of David Lynch? I don't know. Um, I, you know, uh, another great thing about that scene, we had talked last time you were uh, on the podcast, Damon, about the, this sort of teasing possibility of a David Bowie presence in this season, which was there right from the beginning in the season premiere, you know, the the name Philip Jeffries, the idea that that character might be speaking to Mr. C. Um, I'd kind of love to know, h- how did you feel about the the Philip Jeffries presence? Um, on one hand, I, as, as someone who was trying very hard not to hope against hope, I was struck by the fact that like, oh, like, I, I was wondering if there was a David Bowie cameo, you know, I I checked the timeline. It seemed very unlikely. I love that where most creators of TV series or movie franchises, when they no longer have access to characters, usually they will write those characters off. And I'm, I'm amazed at how often in this season, Lynch and Frost have, have found a way to reintegrate those characters without the performers who played them. But how did you feel about, in these last couple of episodes, the presence of Philip Jeffries and the fact that David Bowie was present in Flash? Flashbacks, uh, but was maybe not necessarily present on screen in, in the way that we might have hoped uh, back at the start of the season. Uh, you know, I'm really glad that they doubled down on the Jeffries of it all. Again, I think that this was something that we are openly speculating about from the moment that uh, you know that the return was announced, which was you know now that David Bowie has passed away, are they going to just cut bait on Jeffries? And the fact that they have not just doubled down, but tripled down and quadrupled down and, and, and said, no, he, he's a pivotal part of the, the story that we're telling. And not only that, but he's a mythic character, uh, Jeffries, in the way that kind of the Wizard of Oz is, which is, you know, the Wizard of Oz can take many forms. Granted, he's just a human behind the curtain, ultimately, but, you know, he, he appears as the thing that you most fear. Some, you know, when the Scarecrow uh, goes to see him, he's, he's fire and, you know, and he's a big sort of floating head for the cowardly lion and and so what form is Jeffrey's going to to take on again we were not disappointed i did you know uh, as i alluded to before when we were talking about donna sort of imagine like what what was the you know what was the waiting room for the auditions for <laughs> Jeffrey's look like was there was there a tape dispenser and a garbage can and you know, uh, like a, a coffee maker and, uh, you know, a bicycle with a wheel missing, <laughs> all kind of coming in to read for Jeffries before Lynch said, I'm going with the, t- the teapot. But again, like so many things on, on this show, you know, it defies when, when you are trying to explain 
this to someone who doesn't watch Twin Peaks at all, or in my my case, my wife, as I'm sitting there and and um, and it's Kyle McLaughlin having a conversation with a ginormous teapot in a black and white setting, and she just kind of breezes through the room as I'm watching it, <laughs> and she just gives me that look that I've become very familiar with now, <laughs> like what is this? I don't know. I, I, I find it delightful. And I think maybe that's the last we've probably seen of Jeffries. You know, he's told us, he's, he's given us the wisdom that he, that he needed to give us. His name will certainly be mentioned more times, but, uh, but, I, but I can't imagine that he will, it is required for him to manifest again. But, but then again, uh, I would be thrilled if he did. Yeah. I hope we find out that Agent Jeffries ha- had a child, and so maybe we could get little tiny teapots like walking around the show. Um, <laughs> never mind. Uh, Absolutely. Oh, sorry. Just uh, punch drunk jokes right now. Um, a couple more questions I'd love to ask you about last night's episode. Uh, the scene with Stephen and, and, and Gersten in the woods. Like, first of all, did you watch that uh, whole scene on closed captioning? Because we, 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 we couldn't really understand what Stephen was saying, which is not really a complaint because that whole scene was just a, another extraordinary bit of David Lynch kind of doing those kinds of moods between two people. I'm suddenly reminded of those scenes in the original Twin Peaks of like Donna and James together, the close-ups on their faces. These were like sweet, sensual, intimate scenes between these young lovers. And this is juxtaposed between the, the same idea, uh, the closest of two people, but but both of them are just like, well, one of them in particular seems to be losing his mind under the influence of drugs, uh, mumbling all sorts of weird stuff, increasingly degrading, like tough stuff that is causing Gersten to have a reaction in this giant forest um, at the base of this tree with the sound design of the sequence of these trees that seem to be making these sort of like eerie ethereal sounds. I just loved it as a a thing unto itself, just a a mood. Did you have any thoughts on that or any appreciation of that scene? Here's what happened for me when that's so that scene, if memory serves, and and I and I and I didn't I, I didn't do any rewatching or any internet research as uh, you know prior to this conversation that we're having now. So, but I was so distracted by the fact that Mark Frost <laughs> was walking through the woods <laughs> with a small dog that, and then that scene happened, and then and then Mark Frost comes ac- comes upon the scene again and sort of scamper and and frightens them uh it's like if you're not scared of the fact that your mentally unhinged boyfriend is is threatening to shoot himself nothing will terrify you more than mark frost of the small dog that's what sends gersten scampering around the tree you know <laughs> but and and then the gunshot which uh, initially i interpreted as i think you know, I think he just shot Mark Frost and or his dog. Um, and, and, and then the relief that I exp- – that was Mark Frost, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was Mark Frost. He was playing that, – that is Mark Frost, yeah. and he's playing a character named – I'm suddenly forgetting his name. 
but he played the, the the name that they give him. He played this character in the original Twin Peaks when he had cameos on the show. He cameoed as a TV news reporter, as Cyril Pons right. or something like that. Um, so, but he's playing that character. So, so uh-huh. apparently, the, Mark Frost, TV newscaster, retired to Twin Peaks and may be living in the the, the Fat Trout, you know, trailer park. Right. And then he goes back and he reports to Harry Dean Stanton that, uh, you know, I saw these two two teenagers in the woods and and one of them had a gun uh, and then we're out. So I was very pleasantly distracted by by Frost. And unlike you guys, I'm not entirely sure I needed to hear what they or understand what they were saying to one another. Again, it's 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 one of those scenes of sort of like young, rebellious, dangerous love that Lynch uh, does so well. Except, you know, I, I would say that I that's Caleb Landry Jones. That he's Shelley's daughter's beau, right? Like that's the same dude. I haven't been like in deep on that particular relationship this season. And I don't know what it all adds up to. And so I was equally dist- pleasantly just, I, I go to my happy place when those sort of scenes are unfolding. And so I was sort of like, oh, there's Donna's, you know, little sister who, you know, Alicia Witt, who played the piano so beautifully in that crazy Leland Palmer scene back in the day. And I'm also thinking about Mark Frost, and I'm not really as focused probably on the scene as you guys were. Maybe I should watch with the uh, with the closed captioning uh, more often. But that was that's my slightly alt take on that scene. I I checked out a bit to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. Judging from some of what we were able to glean from the dialogue, that there seemed to be an intimation that something might have occurred prior to this moment, perhaps. Stephen shot Becky, um, Shelley and Bobby's daughter. Maybe Becky gave Stephen some of that sparkle drug that was causing him to tweak out. Um, it kind of led me to wonder if maybe in, in the final three hours of the show, we will revisit that story, but back up a little bit and show what preceded it. And it will be just interesting in general how the show... T- you know, if it chooses, how many of the storylines currently unfolding in Twin Peaks will ultimately be all tied up in what I'm assuming to be the, you know, the the Dougie slash Mr. C return to Twin Peaks entangling with Sheriff Truman and Hawk and all the mythological stuff that's taking place there or, or, or not. I don't know, but it'll be interesting to see if maybe that's the end of, of Stephen or, or if there is more to come and whether it will tie up with, with everything else. Before we let you go, Damon, I'd love to ask, as you look ahead to the final three hours, what do you hope for? Is there any outcome you're actively rooting for? Is there any outcome you're, you're rooting against? Do you have any expectations or any fears? Uh, I guess what I would say is all of the above. I mean, uh, you know, the, the place that I want to be is not necessarily the place that I am. The place that I want to be is whatever the chef cooks, I will eat. And I'm lucky to be in the restaurant. So that's the place that, I, that I'm working towards. And I feel like if I can get there, you know, uh, psychologically and, and emotionally, that that is the place that I aspire to. The place that I'm currently in is you know, to be completely and, and totally honest, that I do feel that sense of, 
you know, that any fan of, of anything that they love begins to feel with is a, you know, you get into that sort of entitlement of, I put a lot of time and, and energy into watching this thing, and therefore I, I am owed something. I'm in a position where I can make demands, and if my demands are not met, I'm allowed to articulate uh, a level of uh, disappointment. And there's really only one thing that is on my list of something that I feel like I am owed and that I'm demanding. But again, I'm working very actively to banish that that school of thought because if it doesn't happen, I don't want to look back on this season uh, of Twin Peaks as anything other than a, than a gift that I never thought I was going to get. Um, and therefore, it's the greatest thing ever and an immense amount of gratitude for everybody who put their time and energy into making it, and not to mention Showtime, who put a time and energy and a, a significant amount of money into into putting it on the air. So that's the way that I want to feel. What I feel like I am owed is is that Cooper is going to be okay. Is he the Dale Cooper that we've been talking about earlier in the pod about um, you know, he's classic Cooper, or has he been changed and and or uh, wounded or or damaged by the experience that he's been through? Fine, but you know, when when peaks originally ended, and we were left with that maniacal, you know, mirror bang, there was always a part of me that felt like disquieted and and a feeling of uh, Cooper was such a good guy, he doesn't deserve this. Uh, I really hope that that it is not his that's not his ending. And that when I heard that Peaks was coming back and, you know, and there were illusions, particularly in the story that you wrote, Jeff, um, that probably had the most access to, to Lynch and, and Frost and the cast in terms of what's the story that they're telling. It felt like it was like, you know, it, not necessarily a redemption story for Cooper, but a healing story. You know, how is, how is he going to get out of this pickle? Dale Cooper is possessed by, by a very bad demon named Bob. How's he going to shake himself of that? And that's what I feel like we're owed. I want to feel not, ne- not necessarily that Cooper is back, but that Cooper is going to be okay. I don't need to see good defeat evil. I don't need to see Bob banished for good. You know, whether they want to lay pipe for future iterations of Twin Peaks, that is their prerogative. But I kind of feel like you know, going through this this 18-hour journey, it, it's very hard to separate my desire to feel like Cooper has suffered enough and I want him to be relieved of his suffering. And even if that means his death, I hope it doesn't, but I, I want to feel like he overcame this this possession in some way. That's my jam. What, what about you guys? Where are you? What, what are your feelings about it? I kind of like the way that you phrased that, Damon, this sort of idea of, you know, not necessarily feeling owed something and yet knowing that there is something from this story that we want. I think what I've really been impressed with a lot this season is that in a kind of narrative structure that seems to me really unique and really panoramic and really unlike anything else I've ever seen before, the times that the show really does play fair and does return to things that, you know, in initially seemed just, you know, weird for the sake of weird, which I'm also 
totally fine with, but the times that the show pays off on those moments in a way that makes those feel really like narratively powerful and, you know, tied into the larger story of the show. I tend to really like that. So that being said, my real hope for the last three episodes is we reach some kind of catharsis on the strange journey of Jerry Horn into the woods and out of the woods. I, uh, having gone back and rewatched the first episode many, many times now um, of this season, I- I'm just so taken with the fact that, you know, so much in that season premiere is stuff that, you know, I just in no way, shape or form did I feel like I understood the first time. I'm not sure I understand it all now, but the idea of what that premiere was setting the table for and how it was preparing me personally for the viewing experience of this season. It's been really interesting. And the fact that we began really early this season with Jerry kind of announcing like, you know, hey, like brother, brother Ben, I'm setting off on this journey. And indeed, that has kind of been what he's done this entire season. Maybe it's just been total weirdness. And maybe it's just that Lynch and Frost love that actor. But I feel very strongly that there is something that will happen with him. I have no idea what and maybe the last we see of him is just him running out of the trees. And I'd be fine with that, too. But as as there are these sort of bigger macro things that I just have no idea about and and you know all of my predictions about them have been wrong I find that I return to those little through lines the show has set up and I kind of hope that there's payoff on that so if the final scene is Jerry Horn ascending into the fireman's movie theater in a ball of glowing light I would I would not be upset about that <laughs> Interesting. I mean, what I will say is, and I think that the the story construction process for Frost and or Lynch is obviously, let's just say, atypical in in terms of the traditional way that narrative arcs are built uh, on television series over a season. But one of the things that I've done on, on the shows that I've worked on, both the ones that I've run and the ones that have been run by others, and many of my peers, you basically kind of get together at the beginning of a season and you kind of jot out, you, you talk about each character and you say, uh, here's what this character's arc is over the course of the season. And sometimes that arc is relatively self-contained and sometimes it, it bounces off the arcs of other characters and, and, and that, that's what creates conflict. But you, you basically end up with, you know, if you, on a show like Lost, we had, you know, 16 uh, or as many of 20 major characters whose th- plot lines that we kind of needed to design and, like, follow through on. And Twin Peaks, many, many more now, not just the, the classic characters, but many else. But I sort of imagine in my mind that there are all these index cards, and each index card has a character's name on it, and sort of like, here's what we're going to do with them this season. And so if I were to flip over the Jerry Horn card and all it says is gets really high, talks to own foot. That would not be, that's not enough for you. Cause that's more than enough for me. Oh, 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 it's, it's fully enough for me. And like, I, I'm not saying that like he needs to be the tie into the great catharsis of the show. I guess I'm just saying I'm intrigued by how some talk of to the other foot. Right, is what right, right. Exactly. Yes. Like there's still a whole foot. There's still, there's still a whole other yeah. foot left to talk to. And I guess it just feels to me that as we get closer and closer towards the end of the show, there's this feeling of these like weird uh, psychological reverberations just going out into Twin Peaks and this episode ended with a character named Ruby who we've never seen before and we'll probably never see again just screaming in the middle of the roadhouse and I do wonder if 
some part of the storytelling that the show is constructing. You know, th- there are the major character arcs and the minor ones, but it all kind of becomes like the the moment from season two of Twin Peaks that I find really haunts me that I think a lot of other people might have just quite wisely glossed over. There's that great episode later in season two when for no apparent reason, everyone in town starts getting a weird arm shake. And it, it all seems to be tied into the fact that, you know, Bob's return to Twin Peaks is occurring deep in the woods. And I just, I guess this is what I'm saying. I'm okay if Jerry's plotline has just been real wackiness because, you know, I, I love that that actor's career has now, you know, across the decades, he was the guy who said Warriors come out and play. And now in this season of Twin Peaks, he has talked to his own foot and indeed kind of been attacked by his own foot. I think that's all great. But I'm also, if there is that sense of just the emotional seismograph just everything that happens with Cooper and the major characters kind of playing across all the minor characters. I'd be intrigued by that too. So if there's more Jerry Horn, one person would be happy. <laughs> he was also the bad guy in, in Dennis Quaid classic 80s garbage Dreamscape. Have you, ever, have you guys ever seen <laughs> no. that movie? No, wait, wait. It's called, ago, it's called yeah. Dreamscape? It's called Dreamscape. It's a classic. Dennis Quaid is basically a psychic and he is recruited by, it, it turns out, the United States government to basically insert it's like a it's like a very low budget 20 years ahead of its time inception he can insert himself into the dreams of others and at first he's basically told that this is a psychological technique for like kids who are having bad nightmares and are being haunted by boogeymen but he very quickly realizes that there's another psychic in the program played by that same actor who plays Jerry Horn and he's basically being used to assassinate the president of the United States in his dream because if you if you die in your dream you die in real life and now Dennis Quaid has to duke it out with Jerry Horn in the dreamscape all sorts of uh, Lynchian parables there. But I, I just do want to say one thing, Darren, which is I think that, you know, by nature of the way that our minds work and, and the way that we've been trained to watch television, like, it would be great for me to say, hey, I have a theory, and my theory is that Dougie Jones, when he sticks the fork in the electrical socket, as you guys sort of said, he's going to travel now. He's going to go somewhere. He must be going to, he's going to come out in the Great Northern, and that's going to explain the noise that Ben Horn and Ashley Judd uh, have been hearing all this time. And that's, we're going to be able to tick off like two boxes. <laughs> that's going to be a connection. And I hope they don't do that because the sort of like the, the dangling participles is what makes peaks peaks. And so I think that, you know, a couple weeks from now, right after Labor Day, we'll all be realizing that it's over again and um, we'll be forced to sort of reckon with all the things that were quote-unquote not resolved. And uh, again, I'm trying to kind of hypnotize myself into not wanting anything to be resolved because it's not a sinking feeling. It's just sort of like, I have a you know a strong gut instinct that not much is gonna be. Mm-hmm. I I pity the the poor writer at, at whatever website is going to get the task of writing the post that here are the forty nine dangling plot lines <laughs> Twin Peaks Return <laughs> didn't resolve and I I really hope it's not me. I, I do think that we're gonna get um, one more beat with Jerry Horn and he's going to be it's going to be set like several years or several months. after after the events, the, the, the final events of the series. 
and he'll be leading a drug rehab counseling clinic for all the other young drug addicts on this show. Um, that, 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 that's his final beat. My big thing for the season, what I want from the final three hours, is, of course, just three hours all about Billy hooking up with Judy. I think that would be a really fitting and satisfying <laughs> end to this. Yeah. Because that's clearly what we should be caring about. I, I think that I, I'm with Damon in the sense of like, Agent Cooper has been one of my favorite characters in all of pop culture for my entire life. And I think that watching the show, I mean, I I wanted the Lynch experience, but I also wanted to know what happened to Agent Cooper. And I too want him to be okay. And uh, so I feel really invested in that journey and I've been challenged, but actually also really satisfied with how ultimately they've treated him. And I I do want something solid and, 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 and definitive about that. And one other thing too, I, I do think that this this the story of Twin Peaks is equally about, and maybe even more so, Laura Palmer. Um, as the late log lady uh, told us, Laura mm. is the one. And uh, she disappeared from the Black Lodge in the first two hours of this show. And so much of the evil that seems to be afflicting Twin Peaks is sort of rooted in everything that her death and destruction and exploitation uh, represents. And she's out loose in the world. Her mother is still deeply affected by that tragedy and maybe even possessed by some evil aspect of it. So that's what I want. I want res. Wait, wait, Jeff. M- m- hold on. Maybe possessed by some evil aspect <laughs> of it? Like, I'm just curious, like, what the other hot take on removes her face and bites off someone's chin. Like, is. It, I have it. It's just really bad beef jerky. That's that's just what happened. Got it. Okay. Indigestion caused not it. an unreasonable. <laughs> that's right. Um, so, I uh, that's what I hope is that even if the Cooper stuff can align with the Palmer stuff in Twin Peaks and get resolution on on both of those ends, uh, that's what I hope to see and love to see. And if we can get that, then uh, give me all the Jerry Horn and Billy and Judy and drugged out Twin Peaks kids crawling on the floor and screaming in spiritual agony agony that that Lynch and Frost want to give us. I'd be very happy. But will Charlie finally take his coat off? (laughs) God, all the coat... All the coat talk, like lots and lots of coat talk. He's going to take his coat off. Why wouldn't he have a coat? Is she going to wear a coat? Like, you know, I've said before, and Jeff, I've said this many times to you, I could never have too much coat talk. But I'll tell you, they're getting really close. They're getting close to my threshold. Damon Lindelof, uh, thank you so much for joining us again. You're officially a member of the Two Timers Club for a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. Um, oh, I thank you. Very, very excited to see where the show goes from here. Um, everybody out there, uh, Damon, uh, where where can they find you on the internet realm, or uh, uh, where can people who want to experience you more on the internet where where can they find you nowadays? First off, I have to say I never thought I'd be proud to to be labeled a two-timer, but uh, but I guess in this context I'm going to allow it. And I am uh, no longer on Twitter, but I am on Instagram. And uh, if you can tolerate a, a heavily politicized liberal viewpoint, if you're not getting enough of that in your life, there's a fair amount of pop culture sprinkled in there too. But 
you know, there's a lot of liberal out, outrage. How can there not be uh, in this day and age? And that's at Damon Lindelof uh, with one F. And uh, that's really the only presence I, I currently have uh, on the Internet that I will disclose. D- Damon, have you given up photos of sinks? I don't know. If I saw the right sink, I would probably sneak it in there uh, again. But, um, but but for now, I think I've I still love sink. Yeah, uh, that's still my my bio. Sinks are cool. Um, sinks are but, cool. But uh, I've 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 evolved. I've evolved. Yes, yes. yes. It's not just about sinks. Everybody out there, uh, if you have any other thoughts you want to share via Twitter, uh, Jeff is at EW Doc Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich, not a doctor. If you want to email us with any of your theories, or if there's any other Jerry Horn fanboy out there, email us at twinpeaks at EW.com. While you're at it, if you like what you're hearing, go on Apple Podcasts, give us a rate and review. We will be back on Monday talking about part 16. Thank you again, special guest Damon Lindelof, for joining us here today to talk about all kinds of important and and very silly things. 